This show is part of the Panoply Pilot Project, where you help greenlight new podcasts. If you like it, hit subscribe to vote for more episodes. Family Ghosts is brought to you by Blue Apron. Create delicious home-cooked meals with fresh ingredients delivered right to your door. Get your first three meals free when you go to blueapron.com forward slash family ghosts. Family Ghosts is also sponsored by Audible. Are you a person who's trying to cook more? As Audible likes to say, let that sauce simmer while the plot thickens. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Because you can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn your chores into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com forward slash pilot to start now. I'm happy. You are happy and present in the work. No, I mean in life. In life. I am happy. Oh, I know. That's my mom and me. Mom's an artist, mostly a photographer, but also a sculptor. And growing up, her work was my world. We called our house the homemade house because mom actually built most of our furniture. We sat on this couch she made out of reclaimed wood from shipping crates. We read by light from lamps she made out of flattened soda cans. And we rested our coffee mugs on tables with legs made out of my old Little League bats. Mom also made the coffee mugs. But mom also made other things. Things that were less functional and, for me at least, more troubling. She has this one sculpture series where she's driven eight-inch nails through wooden structures that look a lot like stereotypical suburban houses. She makes these heavy clay bowls with huge chunks purposely blasted off during the firing process. They're covered in scars and ash stains from the explosions in the kiln. Our walls are lined with photographs of objects engulfed in murky black shadows. Mom insists that this work isn't supposed to be about darkness. My work, I think, is present in a moment. Like that picture in the other room of the birdbath, where the entire universe is reflected in the water. It's like that picture to me is about the entire world. That's so funny to me. To me, it is a bird bath in the shape of a nuclear explosion. And I have always looked at that picture as a serene domestic image made to look like a nuclear meltdown. Well, see, it's probably, you know, I don't spend any time analyzing myself, and I don't spend any time analyzing the... I guess you'd call it the severity of my childhood. And that's the reason I finally got up the nerve to ask mom about her work. Because I've always suspected that the homemade house is haunted by a ghost named Sabina. Her name is Sabina Ben Saeed. She was blind in one eye. She took pills in the morning to wake up and pills at night to go to sleep. She would always wear sunglasses, which of course made her more exotic looking. Good looking woman, a European accent of some kind. Everybody said, you know, she's bad. Stay away from her, she's bad. She was hot and she was blonde and she was French. And I was listening to the radio and it was staticky, but I know that what I heard was, you know, a fugitive from justice. It was an embarrassment to me. Uh, 
but I don't know if it's true. Sabina was, I guess, technically my step-grandmother. And the reason I suspect she's lurking in the shadows of Mom's work has to do with Mom's dad, my grandfather, Grandpa Gilly. He and Sabina were married very briefly in the early 1960s. And to hear Mom tell it, Sabina basically ruined his life. Why did she do this to Gilly? Right. Why did she pick him? Yeah. She could have picked anybody. Why did she pick him? So who was Sabina? And what did she do to us? From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 1, The Family Jewels. I've never known much about Sabina. All I have is this little collection of intrigues. She was beautiful, people say. Grandpa Gilly was madly in love with her. And there was that thing with her eye. She was in the French Resistance, and her brother and her father were. And so then the Nazis kill her brother and her father in front of her. They stick a knife in her eye, so she's blind in one eye. That's why she would always wear sunglasses, which of course made her more exotic looking. The thing is, I also don't know a whole lot about Grandpa Gilly. I was 27 when he died in 2009, but he'd had Alzheimer's for years. And for most of my life, he was lost in the fog of dementia. Before he got sick, the main things I can remember him doing are eating baked salmon and fixing his hair with a comb he always carried in his back pocket. But there are a few people left in the family who remember his younger days. And they've got nothing but good things to say. I always found him very funny, very charming. I'm very fond of him. I always loved Gilly. I thought he was great. I mean, he was a really warm guy. So that's Grandpa Gilly. A plate of salmon, a pocket comb, and a warm heart. How does someone like that end up with Sabina, the one-eyed freedom fighter? The story begins in 1961, in the town of Great Neck, Long Island. Grandpa Gilly is living there with his three kids. My mom, who's 11, her older brother Charles, age 14, her younger sister Stacy, who's 6, and Grandpa Gilly's first wife, Pearl. Pearl is my biological grandmother, my mom's mom. She and Grandpa Gilly had gotten married while he was on leave from the Coast Guard during World War II. After the wedding, he was redeployed, and while he was away, Pearl got sick. She had breast cancer and was bedridden for most of mom's childhood. Mom's sister, my Aunt Stacy, has only one clear memory of Pearl. I can remember her laying in bed and me jumping in the bed, even though I wasn't supposed to, and laying next to her. I remember that she was really big, and I was down. You know, I was like in a ditch. I remember liking laying there. And Mom and Aunt Stacy both remember that when their mother finally died, after battling her disease for years... Grandpa Gilly didn't want to dwell on the past. We didn't go to her funeral. Really? No. He didn't ask us to go. Did you feel upset knowing that it was happening and you weren't there? We didn't know. She just left one day, and she never came back. It wasn't just that they didn't get to go to their own mother's funeral. When Pearl left, so did the father they knew. Shortly afterwards, Grandpa Gilly announced that he'd be staying in the city most nights, and Mom, Aunt Stacy, and Uncle Charles found themselves in the full-time care of a babysitter named Ida May. I cut school all the time and hung out with her. We would sit and watch soap operas and eat candy. 
And the school would call, and she'd say, nope, child's sick. I mean, we were, it was just like a free-for-all. It was a total free-for-all. We ate anything we wanted. We did anything we wanted. And as for Grandpa Gilly? He went wild. He went wild. Now, as you may gather from my memory of Grandpa Gilly obsessing about his coiffure, the idea of him doing anything wild is a little hard for me to imagine. But since the city is apparently where he went for adventure, I decide to see if I can find any evidence of his exploits. All right, so I'm at 37 West 47th Street. There's a gold and black awning with diamond-shaped lights cut into it. I'm standing outside the 47th Street Jewelry Exchange, which is where Grandpa Gilly ran a jewelry business. It was named after me because I was his firstborn child. It was called uh, uh, Charles Jewelers Incorporated. That's the voice of my Uncle Charles, who himself went on to become a jeweler. My grandfather taught Uncle Charles everything he knew about the business, and Uncle Charles had to learn some of those lessons the hard way. This one time, they were at an antique show together, looking to sell off a few pieces. And Grandpa Gilly noticed a nice emerald pin in Uncle Charles's collection. Uncle Charles was hoping to get $4,000 for it, but Grandpa Gilly said, give it to me. I can sell it for six. And he did. And he even let Charles keep five grand from that sale. My uncle was thrilled that his father had given him such a sweet deal. But Grandpa Gilly wasn't done with the pin. As the show progressed, he went to one of his, his guys, and he sold it to that guy for $11,000. And then the guy who bought it for eleven, he sold to somebody else for 22000 I remember this like it was yesterday, you know? So I kept saying to my father, what? and my father said, look, here's the way this works. You would have never gotten $6,000 for the piece. You didn't have the connections or anything for it, you know? Move on. Grandpa Gilly was cut in on that $11,000 deal and the $22,000 one. So Uncle Charles got swindled out of his emerald pin. But he also got the message Grandpa Gilly had gotten from Pearl's death. Don't dwell on the past. I walk into the 47th Street Jewelry Exchange and try to imagine Grandpa Gilly here, his hair perfectly combed, reeling from the death of his wife. The exchange is nothing fancy. Dusty, two-story market with dozens and dozens of cramped booths, behind which are dusty, cramped merchants from all over the world. East Asians, South Asians, Russians, Orthodox Jews. Their languages mingle in the tight quarters, filling the room with a kind of urgent hum as they haggle, hustle, and gossip. In one of the booths, I spy a cheerful old man with wisps of white hair clinging to his scalp. He's chewing on a toothpick, gazing into space. On a whim, I show him a picture of my grandfather. I ask if he remembers Gil Smigrod. So do you recognize this Yes, guy? that's him. That's okay, that's Gil. my grandfather. That's Gil, yes. Uh, Sam, that's taken in here. Now, you see, they remodeled about 10... My new friend with the toothpick remembers that Grandpa Gilly had an amazing reputation as a businessman throughout the exchange. But when I ask if he remembers Sabina Ben Said, he grins. He pulls the toothpick out of his mouth, and he leans across the top of his display case. Grandpa Gilly, he tells me, also had a reputation for something else. Uh, uh, he liked the women. He liked girls. <laughs> Many years after Sabina, Grandpa Gilly married a woman named Yaffa, 
they were together until he died, she's the person I've always thought of as my grandmother. But back in the early 60s, Yaffa and Grandpa Gilly were just friends. She worked at the exchange as a pearl stringer. And she remembers when Sabina appeared on the scene. Even in the midst of the clatter of languages and the shimmering stones, Sabina stood out. She was half French and half Moroccan. She had wild blonde hair and those sunglasses she never took off. Yaffa knew something was up right away. She wore a lot of love of furs, but this was stolen. She wasn't a straight person, as straight as your father was. That's how crooked she was. Yaffa means my grandfather, Grandpa Gilly, not my actual father. And my Aunt Stacy says Yaffa's not the only one who had her suspicions about Sabina. Everybody said to him, stay away from her, she's bad. But Grandpa Gilly didn't stay away. Quite the opposite. He loved that woman, you have no idea. They did things in his booth that I blush even thinking about it. And he's not a guy to show affection. Eventually, things got serious enough that Grandpa Gilly decided it was time for Sabina to meet the family. It didn't go well. It was all horrible embarrassment. It was we bowling with her. It was terrible. And she took the ball and threw it down the aisle, you know, just flung it in the air. And I can remember just, you know, not wanting anybody to see that we were with her. Was she drunk? Was that? No, she was no, just she so was young just... and French and blonde and so obviously younger than he was. It was an embarrassment to me. Now, I'd heard this bit about the bowling trip before. That's one of those things that usually makes it into the anecdotal wine-at-dinner version of the Sabina story. But that part at the end, where Mom tells me that she felt upset about the effect Sabina was having on their family, that part was new. And so was Aunt Stacy's memory of the time Sabina took her shopping. She took me to F.A.O. Schwartz and she said I could have anything I wanted. And I looked around the room and I found the biggest doll that I could find. You know, the doll was probably like this big. And I picked the doll, and I brought the doll home. And at some point, not that long after I think I got the doll, your mother um, me beheaded the doll. <laughs> she cut the head off the doll. I needed it. And she put a, a noose around its neck, and she threw it over the banister. And it hung there. <laughs> and there, there was... And I, I didn't say anything. I mean... <laughs> What are you going to say? I wasn't doing it to be mean. You know, I'm kind of worried. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. But when I listen to all this, it just sounds like we're so totally dysfunctional. Well, it was pretty... I mean, think about it. <laughs> it's a weird situation that you were in. It but is. we didn't... It nobody was, said anything. Nobody, right. Which is like, okay. I think it was her way of saying, you know, screw you. I mean, not to me, but to what was happening. So, by now, it's 1963, and all of this has happened in the slightly less than two years since Pearl's death. And there's more. Grandpa Gilly has married Sabina in a hastily arranged ceremony, and they're living together in Manhattan, while Mom, Aunt Stacy, and Uncle Charles are still in Great Neck with Ida Mae, the babysitter. Aunt Stacy is enjoying the free-for-all. Mom's making banister decorations. And Uncle Charles is spending most of his time with a secret fraternity he founded with some friends at Great Neck High School. It was called TSB, 
That stood for tiny scumbags, tough shit baby. I mean, I don't know where we even came up with the name. We had t-shirts. And then, just when it seems like things can't get any more chaotic, Grandpa Gilly surprises them by coming home one night. It was late, because he got us out of bed. And he says, tomorrow in the newspaper, it's going to say some stuff. And it's going to be really upsetting. And it's just not true. It was the New York Post, something like that. Mm-hmm. 47 Street Wife's Jeweler Smuggles Jewelry. And then name like Smigrod, I mean. Jewelry Smuggler. Yeah, I don't remember the exact headline, but uh-huh. it, was the big, it was the big story. It's true. I've seen the news articles. Sabina was a jewel thief, and she was no small-time crook. The FBI came to the house. It wasn't just the FBI that wanted to know where Sabina was. According to the Winnipeg Free Press, in an article literally titled Interpol Chases Blonde, Sabina posted bail following her arrest in New York, and then, somehow, escaped to Toronto, where she was arrested again. This time, while walking down the street carrying a suitcase containing $100,000 of stolen furs and gemstones. Incredibly, despite the fact that she'd already jumped bail once, she was released by the Canadian police on another bail payment and promptly jumped bail a second time. Interpol joined the search when Sabina was spotted in Switzerland, but she vanished again and apparently made her way south, where, according to my Uncle Charles, she began the process of reinventing herself. She went to Brazil. And I understand also that she opened up some kind of a nightclub over there. So, a few short months after losing their mother and having her replaced by a woman with wild blonde hair who wears lavish furs and throws bowling balls around and wears sunglasses all the time, Mom, Aunt Stacy, and Uncle Charles's lives are upended Again. It was terrible after that. Because that's when the bottom fell out. Because she was smuggling jewelry and he was a jeweler, people thought he was in on it. Grandpa Gilly was terrified of being implicated in Sabina's smuggling scheme. So according to Aunt Stacy, he raced around the house, flinging every piece of jewelry Sabina had left behind into a pillowcase. He drove down to the lake by the library and threw it in there because he was terrified that they would find it on him. (laughs) You know, it's a passion deal. People do wild stuff. But disposing of the evidence wasn't enough. The damage was done. Grandpa Gilly's reputation at the jewelry exchange was ruined. Nobody wanted to do business with him anymore. He was forced into life as a traveling salesman. He would get up at five every morning and drive up and down the eastern seaboard, hawking his modest collection of jade, rubies, emeralds, and sapphires. But while Grandpa Gilly did all he could to distance himself from Sabina professionally, she wasn't far from his thoughts. He used to go down to the payphone on Middle Neck Road and call her at night because our phone was being tapped. And then he went down there to see her. In South America? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brought me back a blue suede miniskirt. With snaps on it. And that's when, nine months later, he said she had a baby. Now, when I started this ghost hunt, I knew there were going to be things that surprised me. 
I didn't know how isolated Pearl, my mom's mother, was from the rest of the family. In fact, I barely knew anything about Pearl. I didn't know about Mom, Aunt Stacy, and Uncle Charles being left alone in Great Neck while Grandpa Gilly went wild. I didn't know about Sabina's escape to Brazil. But I definitely wasn't expecting to find out that I might have a mystery aunt or uncle somewhere out there. The more I ask around, though, it turns out I'm the only one who's not in on the secret. He had a kid over there with her. I think it was supposed to be a girl. I'm not even sure about that. Uh, But I don't know if it's true. Apparently, everyone besides me has heard the story of the mystery baby. It's just that no one's ever tried to find out if she's real. When I put all these details together, they seem like something from an old movie starring, I don't know, Carl Malden as my grandfather, the bumbling jewelry salesman, and maybe Marlena Dietrich as Sabina, the exotic beauty who tricks him into an ill-fated jewelry heist and then vanishes south of the border with the most prized jewel of all, his heart. (laughs) I mean, it all seems so far-fetched. Except for one part. Your mother, um... Me. Beheaded the doll. (laughs) That doesn't seem far-fetched at all. I don't spend any time analyzing myself, and I don't spend any time analyzing the, I guess you'd call it the severity of my childhood. Remember that birdbath photo I was talking about before? You'll have to take my word for it that it looks exactly like a mushroom cloud. There's something about the softness of the focus and the way mom captures the dead grass at the bottom of the frame. It looks like everything is coming to an end, right there in our backyard. And the more I think about it, it seems like whatever's ending started with Sabina. So, my collection of intrigues has grown. But I still want to know more about Sabina. One of the news clippings about her 1963 escape puts her age at 35, which means she was 16 years younger than my grandfather. Could she still be alive? Assuming she hasn't gotten in any more scrapes with knife-wielding fascists, she'd be 89. But how am I going to track her down when all the evidence of her existence is at the bottom of a pond behind the Great Neck Public Library? Or is it? She found out that I really wanted a pinky ring and uh For my 16th birthday, she got me this ring. Uncle Charles is telling me this on the terrace of his apartment in Miami. And it's pretty exciting for me to be here. Because when I was younger, I wanted to grow up to be just like Uncle Charles. As I mentioned earlier, he followed my grandfather into the jewelry business. And while Grandpa Gilly's inventory was elegant, Uncle Charles' taste was way more fun. My favorite part of his collection was this series of silver rings he called poison rings. And there was a, an empty space in there, and this thing would open up, and you'd put your poison in and close it. And if you were giving somebody a drink, you could just flip it and go like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you could put coke in it and go like that or whatever. You know? When I was a kid, I didn't know Uncle Charles was hiding coke in his rings. All I knew was that everything about him was awesome. He always carried a leather briefcase, and he liked his pizza burnt. 
Once, when I was 16, he came to stay at Mom's house with a girlfriend who was a Playboy bunny, or at least he said she was a Playboy bunny, and she told me I looked good in my baseball pants. Uncle Charles only wore loafers, and he always had that pinky ring, which it turns out was a gift from Sabina. I loved the way he would massage the ring between his thumb and forefinger whenever he told stories. And he told stories all the time. But it's been a while since I've heard one. I haven't seen Uncle Charles very much in my adult life. He stopped coming to visit after that time when I was 16. And that was almost 20 years ago. The reason we stopped getting to see Uncle Charles is that in 1998, he was arrested. And this is going to sound familiar. It was for selling stolen jewelry. He worked out this deal to avoid prison in exchange for a fine and 10 years of probation. But there was a problem. He was broke, and he needed new merchandise to sell so he could get back on his feet. So he borrowed a lot of money from my mom with assurances that he'd pay her back from his profits once he was up and running again. But that didn't happen. As soon as mom's money was in his account, Uncle Charles disappeared. For years, mom would call him every week She'd leave him messages where she'd simply say, Charles, don't do this. But Uncle Charles never called her back. I was wrong. I was 100% wrong. It didn't work. It wasn't enough money to really accomplish what it was. So, you know, I was like living on the money and selling and And, and I felt terrible. I, I really felt terrible about it, but I, I, I couldn't pay her back anymore. And so Uncle Charles became another way in which Sabina haunts my mom. It's almost like when she gave him that pinky ring, it was a way for her to leave a piece of herself behind before she escaped. And when Uncle Charles put it on, Sabina became a part of him. It was a poison ring. Of course, the pinky ring isn't the only thing Sabina left behind. When I get back to my hotel, Aunt Stacy calls. She wants to ask about my visit with Uncle Charles, but I want more details about the mystery baby. Uh, what I remember was he got a, some contact from the girl, and she had black hair and black eyes. And she wanted to meet him, and he didn't want to. So, so she got his contact information somehow and called him. Well, you know, it's kind of fuzzy now, but I think she had some men contact him. Two men came to the house, and there was that basket, that mail basket in that little entryway. And I guess they dropped the picture there. Mom remembers the men, too. I remember the men in the dark suits. I think we were watching them out the window. And, you know, there was that little vestibule in the front of the house. Yeah. They must have put something there and then walked back to the car and left. I don't remember ever talking to them. Wow. But you know, it was all kind of, I mean, to you it's wow. To me it's just, well, another day. No, that's crazy. That's like a scene from a spy movie. Well, but this whole thing is like a spy movie, isn't it? (laughs) Now, Sabina may not have been a spy, but she seems to have adopted some of their tactics like sending shadowy men in suits to deliver ominous messages. She was also, apparently, a master of hiding in plain sight. I find a brief mention of Sabina on page 119 of the biography of a ballet dancer named Peter Hayden. The book is called Life on Tiptoe, and Hayden claims he met Sabina 
when he worked at a nightclub she ran in Sao Paulo called Hullabaloo. The club Haydnads was the first in Brazil to feature a blacklight. Sabina appears again in the June 27, 1969 edition of a Rio de Janeiro newspaper called Jornal de Brazil, where a brief item on page 12 announces that Sabina Ben Said will be having a cocktail reception for the press at Club Hullabaloo. At the reception, she will declare her intention to file charges against the state for attempted extortion. Earlier that week, she claims, she was on her way to the bank when police officers surrounded her and forced her into a car. They knew about her past, they warned, and demanded immediate payment of $5,000, or else they would turn her over to Interpol. But Sabina refused, daring the officers to take her to Interpol, which they did. She was interrogated, but ultimately released, because, as she gleefully reminds the reporters, even if she were guilty of a crime, she can't be extradited, because she has a five-year-old daughter born in Sao Paulo. Sabina's daughter, she seems to be suggesting, has rendered her immune to her past. Meanwhile, back in the present, my girlfriend Jennifer and I drive out to Great Neck to find the pond behind the library where my grandfather threw the pillowcase filled with Sabina's jewels. It's a quiet place, nestled between the back of the library and a row of stately suburban homes with backyards that slope down to the banks of the water. This is a weird place to bring the bag of jewels that are your only physical connection to your wife who's just fled the country. It's pretty dramatic. It's very dramatic. (laughs) It's an extremely dramatic gesture to come here and hurl a pillowcase full of jewelry into the middle of this pond. I'm just trying to imagine what he would, was thinking to himself after he watched it, like, splash into the middle. It's not quite the same as a pillowcase full of jewels, but I pick up a large rock and toss it into the pond. There is something really satisfying about taking something heavy and throwing it into the middle of the water and watching it disappear and knowing that's probably going to stay down there forever. You know, it's kind of like he was hiding it from himself. So he knew that if he threw it, it wasn't just that he was preventing other people from ever finding it. It was that he knew if he threw it in there, he wasn't going to go in after it. He knew he had to move on. Of course, Grandpa Gilly didn't do a very good job of moving on, as evidenced by those late-night trips to the payphone on Middle Neck Road, not to mention the mystery daughter. Back at the office, I send my mom scanned copies of Peter Hayden's biography and the Journal de Brazil article, and two days later, she calls to report that she's made some progress of her own. Fascinating, isn't it? Especially since I don't know what I'm doing on the internet. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I must have typed in Ben Saeed Smigrod. And that's when Maya Monica Ben Saeed Smigrod came up. And I was like, oh, my God. So I'm looking now at at what you sent me. It says Maya Monica Ben Saeed Smigrod. Some. Yeah. El Conquistador Suites and Salgados Finos. (laughs) 
I mean, let's be real. How many Ben Said Smigrods could there be in the world? That has to be her. I mean, that it, that it has, has to, to be. be her. Later that night, I'm telling my girlfriend Jennifer that we might be on the brink of tracking down Grandpa Gilly's long-lost secret daughter. And I've got a whole plan, I tell her. I'm going to look up business records for El Conquistador Suites and Salgados Finos. It appears that the company was involved in this dispute with the Sao Paulo Sanitation Department. So maybe there's someone there who remembers the case. Jennifer, however, has a better idea. Facebook. We do a search for Maya Monica Ben Said Smigrod. Okay, so we're scrolling down. Oh my god, look! A woman with black hair and black eyes smiles at us from the computer screen. She's wearing translucent lace pants and a strapless bikini top. And she's holding a Corona light on a soccer field. (laughs) (laughs) But she's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is the first indication from her Facebook page that she's in Sao Paulo. I think that's her, Jennifer. Oh, my God. Wait, 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 wait. Go down. Yeah. Click on that picture. Amongst Maya's public-facing photos is a shot of her embracing an older woman with the caption, Miss Honey, my mentor. The older woman has curly blonde hair, and she's wearing a trench coat. And in the background, you can see through the windows that it's dark outside. But the woman with blonde hair is wearing sunglasses. While I'm trying to figure out my next move, Aunt Stacy decides to take matters into her own hands. After I tell her about the discovery of the mysterious Maya, she calls to inform me that she has sent Maya a Facebook friend request and that Maya has accepted. Oh my God. Oh my God. I, I can't believe this. Um, you really, you got a hornet's nest going here. I ask Aunt Stacy to send Maya a message. All right, so here we go. Hi there. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, hi there. I mean, I just, oh shit, I just sent it. God damn it. <laughs> oh. All right, I. Um, Gil Negron's daughter, I was wondering if you are Sabine's daughter. How's that? It works. Maya writes back instantly. Yeah, yeah, definitely her. It's her, Sam. And now she wants to chat, so I'm going to write my nephew can get us a translator on Tuesday. Alô, estou conversando. Hello? Estou conversando com a Maya. Sim, Maya Mônica Bensaid. Maya Mônica Bensaid. Stacy, you want to say hello? Hi, Maya. Oh, <laughs> hi, Stacy. Fifty-three years after Sabina first jumped bail, Aunt Stacy and I are on the phone with Maya Mônica Bensaid Smigrod. The half sister Stacy always suspected she had. I asked mom to join us too, but she said she thought it would be too much. And now that we're on the phone with Maya, I'm realizing it's a little too much for me. There's so much I want to know, and I'm not even sure where to begin. Thankfully, Aunt Stacy is ready to dive right in. Did she ever meet my father, her father? 
É, Maia, ela quer saber, Sim. você alcançou a conhecer Gilles Migrode? Bem pequenininha, eu fui Maya tells us she met Grandpa Gilly once when she was two or three years old. So she doesn't really remember much, but she has one memory. She thought he put on deodorant in a funny way. <laughs> she remembers him putting on deodorant and kind of waving his arms around to wait for the deodorant to dry. And uh, she thinks he even left that deodorant there at her house. While I'm processing the image of my impeccably coiffed grandfather flailing his arms around in a jewel thief's bathroom in Sao Paulo, Maya tells us something else. Sabina has been dead since 1994. And my hopes that Maya will be able to fill in the gaps between Sabina's escape from New York in 1963 and her rebirth as an entertainment mogul in Brazil evaporate. Maya explains that Sabina never talked much about her life before her arrival in Sao Paulo, which apparently led to some puzzling moments for Maya as a child. They lived in a little apartment above the club that she owned or worked at, and she remembers her mom set up, built a false wall in their little apartment so that every time she thought authorities had come to their apartment door, she would hide behind that wall. Uh, she said the FBI had come, and uh, there was one day where Maya was a little girl playing outside downstairs, and the FBI came and asked her, where's your mother? And she gave her mother up, saying that she was upstairs yes. in, the, in the apartment. <laughs> I'm sure she didn't mean to. Muita <laughs> confusion. It seems that just as Sabina vanished with only a pinky ring to prove she was ever here at all, Grandpa Gilly left Maya in Brazil to wonder why FBI agents were showing up at her apartment with only the lingering scent of his deodorant to remember him by. Maya says she only spoke to him one other time. When she was about 24, 25 years old, a friend of hers was going to the U.S., so she asked her friend to try to help him find Gil. But when she communicated with him, uh, he asked that she not reach out to him, um, that he had a family, and uh, he, he had a new life. And she said that she cried a lot because it was very painful for her to hear that from her own father. It was too late. Grandpa Gilly had moved on. She says she imagines that, that maybe he was a calm man because her mother is muito louca. <laughs> she says her mother is very crazy, uh, that she has a, an energy, a spice to her that she imagines you probably couldn't keep up with. So in the end, it seems that Maya doesn't know much more about Sabina than we do. Maya's only sure of one thing. So Stacy, she uh, she says she her heart is open. She's so thankful for this conversation, for meeting you guys. She considers you guys her family now as well. After the call, I ask Aunt Stacy if she agrees with Maya. I want to know if this has changed everything for her. If it means we're going to plan a visit to Sao Paulo to finally unite the family once and for all. 
But that's not how Aunt Stacy's feeling. You know, I, I don't really need or want any kind of relationship with her. I have a sister. <laughs> I love my sister. I don't need another sister. Besides, Aunt Stacy says, she doesn't really think the story is about Maya or Sabina, after all. I think that the most interesting character of anybody in the family is um, Grandpa Gilly. I have to admit, I agree with Aunt Stacy. I don't know if Grandpa Gilly was the con man Maya imagines. But there was a lot more to him than a broken heart, a plate of salmon, and a pocket comb. What kind of person swindles his own son out of thousands of dollars? Or pawns his children off on a babysitter in the aftermath of their mother's death? Or abandons his own daughter in Brazil, telling her she's not really part of his family? Why did she do this to Gilly? Why did she pick him? She didn't. They chose each other. The whole thing makes me think of the only really clear memory I have of Grandpa Gilly. From the last time I saw him, just before he died. We're sitting around his kitchen table, and he's barely clinging to reality. He's wearing pink sweatpants, his hair is a mess, and he's staring at a stack of playing cards. He turns the cards over, one at a time, his hands quivering. He squints at the numbers and pictures, trying desperately to understand what he's looking at. He lifts his head, and he looks around the table for help. Yaffa strokes his hand gently, trying to reassure him. Aunt Stacy's head is down. Her hand is in front of her face. She's sobbing quietly. And Mom is staring directly at Grandpa Gilly and smiling. That image has always haunted me. Knowing what I know now about Grandpa Gilly, I wonder if what's behind that smile is spite. Maybe... Mom is grinning as she remembers Grandpa Gilly abandoning the family after Pearl's death and thinking to herself, this is what you get. Maybe now that I've uncovered all these other things about him, she'll finally admit to me that she blames him for plunging her world into darkness, that he was the bomb in the backyard. I don't know if you remember this, but we were sitting, this was after he got sick, and we were sitting at his table, that mm-hmm. circular table yeah. with the deli stripes. <laughs> but mom sees it differently. Is, do you remember that? Yeah. Do you remember what you were feeling? I got it. It's like I'm having the conversation with him. He and I, at that moment, are meeting at some unspoken conceptual place where I know exactly what he's doing. And so, is it sad that he can't verbalize or that? Yes. Is it so satisfying that I'm connecting with him at that moment? Yes. So all I can control at that moment is that I'm connecting with him. And that's why I'm smiling. Sabina gave Stacy a doll and Charles a ring. Maybe Sabina, whose own vision was so brutally attacked, gave mom the gift of sight. The ability to look at a birdbath or a disheveled old man losing his mind in a deck of cards and see something else. It's like living in an imaginary world. Because obviously, if I think about it, the real world 
hasn't been that um, satisfying, right? And so what I'm standing looking at is not interesting to me. That's what people can see, but they can't see what I can see, which is beyond that. The light or the death or the future or the past or the imaginary, and the mm -hmm. ability to make that happen is what I find magical. My whole life, I've wandered through our homemade house, full of these structures and objects that look like they're being attacked, wondering why my mom is putting their destruction on display. And now, I have my answer. For her, it isn't destruction. It's magic. I'm the one who sees it the other way. I'm the one who can't move on. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Verilyn Williams. Our music is by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Jake Dingman, with logo design by Dan Blondell. Thanks to Mia Lobel, Anne Hepperman, Laura Mayer, Andy Bowers, and Lulu Miller for their editorial insights, as well as my fellow producers in the family. Special thanks to Jason DeLeon, Kristen Meinzer, Odelia Rubin, Andrea Salenzi, Wally Say Almeida, Maya Goldberg Safir, Emily Kennedy, Claire Woodcock, Zoe Sullivan, Renee Shield, Jim Rosenheim, Alan Smith, and Marshall Crook. And to Jennifer Trowbridge, without whom none of this would have been possible. Lastly, and most of all, thank you to my wild and wonderful family. I'm grateful for you every day. Family Ghosts is part of the Panoply Pilot Project. And we'd really like to make more episodes. Future installments of Family Ghosts will tell the stories of ghosts from other families, not just mine. If we get picked up, you'll hear a new story like this one on every episode. So if you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes, subscribe to the feed, and leave us a review. And tell anyone you think would like this thing to do the same. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sam Dingman, and I'll hopefully see you next time on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. This show is part of the Panoply Pilot Project. Ever wonder how a podcast gets greenlit? Now you get to be part of the process. Help us decide which pilots will become series. Cast your vote by subscribing at iTunes.com slash panoplypilots, or you can vote at panoply.fm slash panoplypilots. From PR.